Welcome to Non-Toxic. I'm Daniel Penny. Last week, we spoke with Callum Hood from the Center for Countering Digital Hate about incel communities and their obsession with alphas. This week, Andrew is taking the wheel to talk about where the idea of the alpha wolf even came from, its shaky scientific basis, and why men need to stop comparing themselves to packs of wild animals. Andrew, it's good to be back. Likewise. I'm excited for this one, Danny. Before we start, maybe it's a good idea to take a couple of minutes to talk about why some of the research done by today's guest, Connor Mayer, feels so groundbreaking and why it relates profoundly, I think, to the stories we humans tell ourselves about our own social hierarchy. Absolutely. So Connor Meyer is a PhD researcher at the University of Montana who studies wolf populations and their behaviors in Yellowstone National Park. His work is helping to change the way we think about this mythic animal, especially about those individuals considered quote-unquote alphas. That word, alphas, it was really born from a 1947 study by Rudolf Schenkel. What Schenkel seemed to find was that wolf society was highly structured around the supremacy of a breeding pair and enforced through violence if necessary. The problem was that Schenkel was observing these wolves under very unique and unnatural conditions. They actually lived in a 32 by 65 foot enclosure, and they'd come from different zoos, thus different families. They had zero connection to the wild anymore, or each other, really. That sounds a bit like aliens trying to understand humans by watching, I don't know if you remember that HBO show, Oz. Every time I have to take a shit, you move the pieces. That's why I'm fucking losing. Keep losing because you suck. You motherfucking bitch! Right. So Schenkel comes up with this theory about wolves based on his zoo experiments and observations. How did that hold up? It actually held up pretty well for a long time. I mean, you have to consider the difficulty of studying wolves 75 years ago, especially wild ones. They're naturally skittish, so interactions with humans are rare. And at the time, we'd pretty much wiped out populations around Europe and most of North America. Gotcha. So there weren't very many big bad wolves for us to actually study. Not so much anymore. But then comes along another study in 1970 by David Meech. Meech's study was called The Wolf, Ecology and Behavior of an Endangered Species. In it, Meech picked up on Schenkel's ideas, only he was actually studying a wild wolf pack on an isolated island in Lake Superior. After the study, Meech publishes this exhaustive book on wolves and wolf behavior. It becomes this unexpected bestseller. Okay, so this sounds like better science than what Schenkel was doing. Did Meech actually see this alpha male dynamic in the wild? Well, that's the thing. So while Meech had based a lot of the book on his own research, for the behavioral stuff, he still had to rely on Schenkel's work. And because of the book's success, this idea of there being alpha males in wolf packs, it just really hit the mainstream and stuck. That's not good. No, not so good. And that's also what Meech thought not long after the book's publication, after he had actually been able to observe a good number of wolves in the wild. So in these wild settings, he discovered, alphas are just the pack's breeding pair and the other wolves are their offspring or younger relatives. No one's ruling by force or dominance. Instead, they're just acting like moms and dads. 
This became a big deal in biology circles, but it didn't translate to a wider audience. The rest of the world and pop culture had vacuumed up the idea of the alpha. Meech disavowed the theory, and after a really long back and forth with his publisher, he did actually succeed in getting them to stop printing <laughs> new copies of the book. I can't imagine that, writing a bestseller and then spending the rest of your career trying to retract it and having nobody listen to you. Oh my God, worst case scenario. It seems like basically once the genie was out of the bottle, everyone started writing about alphas. Like, How did it get from biology circles to pop culture beyond the people who loved David Meech's book? Like, Were there any other intermediaries? There, there are a lot of examples, but I think a really great example is research that came from Dr. Franz Duvall. In 1982, he published a book called Chimpanzee Politics, which looks at how chimp society operates in this really hierarchical way. 1982. Keep it up with me. Oh! What a time for the alpha. Absolutely. It follows this chimp group with an incumbent male who is being challenged by a young upstart. There's coalition building, betrayal, and a lot of aggressive behavior. And since chimps are thought to be our closest relatives, they're not, bonobos are, it was tempting to say that humans are essentially the same. The alpha idea, it also got a big boost from a certain conservative congressman, Newt Gingrich, who apparently recommended chimpanzee politics to every freshman congressman while he was in Republican leadership in the 1990s. And if you look at Google's Ngram tool, which shows you how often the phrase alpha male appears in books, it really shoots up at this time. But here we go with a twist. There are some wolves that do exhibit aggressive behavior, and research suggests it may not be on account of their genetics. This is how I connected with Connor Meyer, who's been doing some really interesting work on, wait for it, brain-controlling parasites. No. Yes. Kind of. In the spring of 2021, Meyer and his colleague, Yellowstone National Park biologist Kira Cassidy, were studying the prevalence of a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii in the park's wolves. This thing's common in cats and mice, and it lives in its host's muscle and brain tissues and does things like boost dopamine and testosterone production. So it's not quite brain controlling. It's more like behavior influencing. Okay, so tell me about this research, Andrew. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. They published a pretty exhaustive paper on it. And really, I think the top line thing to understand about Toxoplasma gondii is that what it's doing, it's, it's doing for a very good evolutionary reason, which I think Connor explains pretty well at the top of our conversation. So suffice it to say that this parasite, it wants its host to get eaten. And for wolves in Yellowstone, that translates to infected wolves setting themselves up for behavior that makes them more susceptible to being eaten by cougars. Okay. I didn't think anything ate wolves, but I guess you're never really at the top of the food chain, are you? It's also pretty common in humans. And some studies have linked it to behavior that, well, resembles alpha-like qualities. So... Connor and I, we talk a bit about Toxoplasma gondii, his study with Kira Cassidy and other colleagues, but we also get into a lot of the myths around wolves and alpha behavior. Ultimately, I think 
this conversation, it really made me stop and think about just how much we humans have misunderstood nature for, for so long. I'm really excited. Let's take a listen. Connor Meyer, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Before we jump into this recent study of yours, which certainly has made a lot of rounds, let's just start with this parasite, Toxoplasma gondii. What exactly is this thing and what's its purpose in life? That's starting off with a big, deep question. So Toxoplasma gondii is a protozoan parasite. So it's, it's a you know, tiny little parasite that is capable of infecting any warm-blooded species on Earth but it can only sexually reproduce within the gut of a felid. So like your house cats, mountain lions, anything that's a felid, and it can asexually reproduce in any warm-blooded species. And so that includes humans, that includes all birds, all mammals. It is, is really interesting because it has to have this kind of multi-stage life cycle. So if, if a house cat is infected with Toxoplasma gondii, or just for simplicity, I might just call it toxo. Each time that it defecates for about two weeks after initial infection, it will um, kind of release these oocysts. They're a, it's a form of the, the protozoa, but it's kind of easily thought about as kind of like an egg. And any animal, any, again, warm-blooded species that comes across those oocysts and ingests them will become infected. These oocysts are one-fifth the width of a human hair, so they're tiny. So it's not like things know that, that they're consuming these. And after ingestion, the protozoa will cross the gut lining and spread to that animal's muscle tissue and the brain. Wow, okay. Toxo's mission is to reach the brain. What happens once it gets there? So this parasite, if it just makes, you know, all animals, all warm-blooded animals that it infects just like a little more risky than even if that's just like a half a percent better, you know, predation rate or something like that. It's going to keep spreading and it's going to keep infecting cats. It's going to keep, you know, being deposited in their defecation and, and kind of go from there. So it's this really cool parasite to think about how it interacts with, you know, both felids, but also with everything that it infects. And how it might change the relationship between its, you know, intermediate host being any warm-blooded species and its definitive host being a felid, the thing that it needs to get back to to sexually reproduce. You mentioned humans a moment ago. It's my understanding that this is actually pretty prevalent in us, right? There are some estimates that that this parasite infects like 30 to 60% of the world's human population. You know, people who can or want to become pregnant, Toxo probably sounds familiar because a lot of doctors will test pregnant people for Toxo because Toxo is actually incredibly dangerous for immunocompromised, which can include pregnant people or could in, it's, it's actually a very big problem for, for folks with HIV or AIDS just because they have that suppressed immune system. And so pregnant people who get infected with Toxo can have some negative symptoms, but it can also be really terrible for a developing fetus. And so a lot of folks, their kind of only like interaction with Toxo might be through, you know, warning about it during pregnancy. Okay. So it's prevalent in humans and it's also, I think, been 
link to some pretty stupid human behavior as well. Can you talk about that a bit? Yes. You know, there is research that shows that humans with Toxo are more likely to be in car accidents or more likely to be in motorcycle accidents. I'm not a psychologist. I don't pretend to understand humans, but there is, you know, some research that has looked into the effects of human behavior and toxo infection and kind of what it, what it found is, is very similar. We're like humans that for one reason or another might be more prone to boldness or more prone to aggression or whatever, like toxo maybe amplifies that a little bit, but like toxo doesn't make someone who's like introvert, never talks to somebody like you give them toxo and they like become a president. That's not really how it works. There's so many other things that go into behavior and there's so many things that go into behavior for humans and behavior for wolves. But it seems like, you know, and our research shows that Toxo is one of them and it's a significant one, but it's not the only thing. Gotcha. So not mind controlling per se, but definitely not nothing. I want to talk about this study you conducted with Kira Cassidy and other colleagues. The paper summarizing your research was published back in December, which we'll link to in the show notes. But can you describe for me kind of the nuts and bolts of this study? What did gathering all this information actually look like? Were you out in the field camping for days on end, just following wolves and cougars around Yellowstone? Because if you were, that sounds like a fantastic assignment. The Yellowstone Wolf Project was, was you know, there to reintroduce wolves and then there to study them and study their impacts on the ecosystem. And so, you know, from 95 on, there are a number of studies, a number of very intensive studies done each year. And two of them are, you know, called winter study. And so winter study is where for 30 days, either from mid-November to mid-December or, or and March 1st to March 30th, there are, you know, anywhere from like six to maybe 20 volunteers or, or employees that are out in Yellowstone working for the Yellowstone Wolf Project, they go out and they look for wolves. And so each, each group of around three people is assigned to a specific wolf pack. And their job from sunrise to sunset is to, you know, drive the roads, use telemetry, use as much information as they can to find wolves and watch them. You know, and this is, this is a multi-pronged study. For 30 days, crews are out there trying to document every second where there's sunlight of these wolves' lives. And then there's the other aspect where, and this is mostly what I did, is searching GPS cluster locations. So since these winter studies have been getting, going on since 1995, we've been interested in what wolves are eating. And so one of the best ways to determine what wolves are eating is if you have them GPS collared, anytime that they spend more than an hour in one location, it could be because they either killed something or are scavenging, you know, found something that they can eat, right? What we did is we would, you know, hike, ski to any of these locations to see what they're eating. And then there's the, there's an air crew. So for those 30 days, as many days as weather allows, there will be someone flying in a fixed wing airplane looking for wolves as well and trying to see if they can detect carcasses that wolves are on that couldn't be seen from the road or might not have been captured from these GPS collars to really try to like get the best estimate possible of what wolves are eating, how they're spending their time. 
every few weeks, you know, out, out of the year, there would be some of these fixed wing airplane flights. And so that's where a lot of data on wolves that disperse. So wolves that, you know, are born into a pack and then, you know, for, for various reasons, they would want to leave that pack to either go join a new one or go, you know, try to form a new pack. Let me jump in if I can. So these wolves are just incredibly researched in, in Yellowstone. I mean, you've got, you've got eyes from the air, on the ground, all over the place. And I'm just curious, you know, there's, there's, there was this sort of preconceived alpha male, F, alpha female notion out there. W- were there any, when you decided to embark on this study, were there any, was there a moment or a series of moments where you observed behavior or looked at, I don't know, looked at the GPS, the telemetry, and just saw something that said, hey, this is a little bit, you know, off from kind of what we know about wolf behavior. Well, I think I think one of the things that that's the most interesting is kind of this like like misconception about wolves or, you know, wolf behavior in, in so many different ways, right? Like I think part of it is, you know, all of the like myths and legends regarding wolves and the big bad wolf and how wolves are generally the bad guy, you know, like The Grey, the movie with Liam Neeson The Grey is like one of the worst movies for wolf behavior if we can get to that tree line we can better defend ourselves go go i think that there is this this kind of image of wolves as like these blood bloodthirsty monsters that kill for fun and have like this great success rate and it's like wolves hunting are only successful about 10 percent of the time like they're bad they're bad at it um so like they're not these like super efficient crazy predators like being successful 10% of the time in any of our daily lives would like not work out super well, you know, like think about that. And so I think that, that just kind of like working with wolves and learning some of that stuff, definitely some misconceptions, but I think, you know, talking specifically about behavior and kind of the reason I went on that tangent is this idea of like wolves and wolf leadership has to be these like crazy fights where, you know, there's like, dramatic lighting in the background and thunder and lightning coming down as they're fighting. It's like, no, it's not who has like the most scars or who like is always like fighting or biting or, you know, making others in the pack bleed. It's just kind of like, oh, who's kind of a little more confident? You know, I think that there is a lot to learn from wolf society. I think that's that's one of the things is this myth of kind of the alpha male, particularly because you know, the way that we're, the way that we're seeing this like alpha male kind of like, you know, kind of toxic masculinity in human society. Wolf packs have two leaders, you know, traditionally called like the alpha pair, alpha male, alpha female. The person who kind of coined that term, Dave Meech, has since spent the rest of his career trying to tell people that alpha male, alpha wolves don't exist. It's this idea that it's like, it's not just because you're, you know, more aggressive and more muscular and, you know, more able to, to like beat down the other members of your pack, but it's just like, you're a good leader. And like these, these other wolves kind of trust you more or less again, anthropomorphic, but you know, it's these subtle things that, that convince others to follow you, right? Like you don't need to, to have a big fight in front of the entire pack. You know, it's not like a Lion King, end of Lion King sort of thing. 
it's just kind of like, yeah, these kind of subtle hints, these subtle cues that you're a good leader. And, you know, I think like even just, you know, it's an anecdote and it's an example, but one of the leaders of the Junction Butte Pack in, in Yellowstone for a lot of the time that I was was working there had like terrible limps in his his back, his both his back legs. And so it's like, it's not that he was this like most kind of like, you know, like masculine or like the best at winning fights or these sorts of things because he had issues in his joints. And so, yeah, it's just really interesting to kind of think about. And we don't know everything that goes into being the leader of a wolf pack. I think that's something that that myself and Kira have talked about trying to figure out. It's just like, what is it that makes makes you a leader? You know, and then what is it that could make you a good leader, right? Because there, there's a difference there. I think, I mean, that that's kind of a good point, Connor. You had mentioned Kira's work and some of her, her earlier studies on sociality, you know, between wolf packs and Yellowstone. I guess she was looking at fights between packs. And, and what she found was, you know, it wasn't the, what determined a fight wasn't sort of one alpha out alphaing one it was something as sort of simplistic as age right like it was just packs with older wolves more experienced kind of like what you're saying they're sort of able to maybe communicate a little better between each other they were the ones winning the fight and that certainly cuts against you know this idea of some some wild alpha just sort of coming out of the blue and, and taking over Totally. No, I, yeah, like Kira, Kira's done some of the coolest wolf work, I think, you know, and she's got a, a number of, of different talks and especially a TED talk that kind of talks about like animal experience and the value of older and experienced individuals and in animal societies. What she did is she looked at, at inter-pack fights, so fights between wolf packs in Yellowstone, and she found that you know, two things were, were significant. One, just having more wolves than the other pack. Like, that makes sense. If you're playing, like, if you're playing soccer and you have, you know, full 11 and you, the other team's got a couple red cards, like, they're at a different disadvantage. Absolutely. If, like, you've got a bunch of, like, under 19-year-olds playing each other, but one team has Messi, like, yeah, that team's going to do so much better. Our conversation with Connor Meyer continues after the break. Today's episode of Non-Toxic is sponsored by Fruley, a New York-based snack company making next-level trail mix with heirloom varieties of nuts, berries, and whole-roasted cacao beans. This type of quality is normally reserved for Michelin star chefs, but Fruiling sources directly from small organic farms in the most mineral-rich regions of the world. Find Fruiling products at select boutiques and health food stores or order directly online. Listeners can use the code NONTOXIC, that's in all caps, for 20% off orders at fruling.co slash shop. Fruling, naturally delicious. I wanted to circle back to the wolf behaviors you all identified in the study that suggested influence from Toxo. Can you just break these down for us? We wanted to look at really three different behaviors that can be deemed risky. And so one of those is dispersing. So that's, again, like generally striking out on your own. Sometimes wolves disperse in groups of, you know, like a bunch of brothers might disperse together. So individuals infected with Toxo were more likely to disperse and were more likely to become pack leaders later in life. And wolves that 
were positive or wolves that were exposed to toxo were not more likely to be habituated, which is good. And and habituation means what exactly? So habituation for for animals is just getting used to people kind of to to like a dangerous amount. And so wolf habituation is something that that we're really interested in Yellowstone because we really haven't seen too much habituation in Yellowstone. And, you know, I'm sure people can debate this for a long time, but we defined habituation as wolves kind of knowingly and intentionally approaching people or vehicles, whether it's because, you know, they somebody at some point gave them food. So they keep expecting humans to give them food. That doesn't happen often in Yellowstone. If you're approaching vehicles or you associate people with vehicles and so you're approaching vehicles, you're approaching the road more often, odds are you're going to get hit by a car. And so that's inherently dangerous as well. And then the last thing that we looked at for behavior was leadership. And so this one was was a little tougher to link directly to a like danger or a risk. But Toxo is interesting because the more that we we looked into it, the more we found that it was linked, that Toxo infection was linked to an increase in dopamine and testosterone levels. In general, wolf leadership is more stressful or has been linked to an increase in stress hormones. Increase in testosterone and increase in dopamine can possibly make you bolder, however you define that. You might be more likely to try to, to become a leader, or you might be more likely to be just like slightly more aggressive in any, you know, in like interpack fights, or, you know, just like you might kind of have that like bolder personality. You know, you might essentially like, if we're looking at humans, it's like you might be more likely to have a louder voice in a group. But the, you know, exciting results was that wolves that were positive for Toxo were 11 times more likely to disperse from their natal pack than wolves that were negative for Toxo, and then 46 times more likely to become a pack leader than wolves that were negative for, for Toxo. And so those are pretty big odds. And so, you know, getting those results was kind of like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is really interesting and really cool. And like, we don't totally know what the mechanisms are still because we this wasn't an experimental study like we weren't able to look at hormone levels and we weren't able to look at every single aspect of a wolf's life but we could account for a number of them and one of the the things that we found was like the longer that a wolf is monitored so more or less the longer that a wolf lives regardless of if it's positive or negative for toxo the more likely it's going to be to disperse or become a pack leader so you know i think Something like Toxo really seems to accelerate the process, maybe of dispersing or becoming a pack leader, but it's not the only thing that makes a wolf disperse or become a pack leader. I assume you've always been fascinated by wildlife behavior, maybe even wolf behavior specifically, like long before embarking on, on this particular study. So I guess I'm just curious about what your own notions around the alpha male dynamic were early on and how they've changed after conducting this work. I love that people are inspired by wildlife. I mean, I'm, you know, for better or worse, basing my entire life on wildlife, you know, and like I'm currently doing a PhD at University of Montana because I just love the natural world. But, you know, and, and so it's part of me, you know, the part of me that like kind of sees some of this more toxic, like, We'll take what we want from from certain wildlife 
cultures or societies or, you know, whatever, and, and ignore some of the other stuff. If we're talking about masculinity, there is this idea where like, we want to, we as society, like look to these like strong animals and we want to base ourselves or our culture or whatever around animals. I, we've kind of taken ourselves out of the animal conversation as humans, but like a lot of the things are similar, right? Like you can look at it with, you know, your quote unquote lone wolf, like, ooh, that person's like a lone wolf. They're on their own and they're like rugged, you know, but like we look at wolves, it's like wolves don't want to be alone. Wolves are pack animals. When wolves are alone, they're actually more likely to die. I think we have so much to learn from wildlife. And I think that like just going for the snippets, right, of just going for like, oh, well, the most aggressive wolf is the leader is like, well, no, like the wolf that's just kind of the best leader is generally the leader. And, and if you look back at the past, and I'm probably not going to get these percentages totally correct, but I think in a lot of hunter gatherer societies, the like, you know, big man, like masculine man hunter would only provide like 30% of the calories and the gatherers would provide 70% of the calories. Do you think, Connor, these misunderstandings in society impacted wildlife research early on and kind of influenced its trajectory all the way up until now? If we're talking about wildlife research and wildlife as a culture, it's got its problems, right? There, there's going to be a little bit of bias in that. You know, and, and again, you know, like Dave Meech, Doug Smith, you know, Dan Staler, like John Busetich, Rolf Peterson, like all of these like amazing wolf researchers through history are men. Someone like Diane Boyd, a woman studying wolves back during reintroduction, like, you know, we don't always hear as much about that. And I think we should. And I think now with folks like, you know, Kira Cassidy, Brenna Cassidy, another, another member of, of my lab here at the University of Montana studying wolves, like, you know, there, there are so many women studying wolves. And so they're providing these kind of different aspects of how wolves work. And, and this idea now that's coming out that like, you know, wolf, wolf packs are more closely related to like a matrilineal society where leadership is passed down from mother to daughter. And the male wolves have to go off and find their own pack, you know? And so, you know, similar to orcas, similar to elephants. But I think that, that you know, if we look at wildlife research in general, there, there has just always been this male bias in the researchers. And so there's been male bias in the research that's being conducted. And so I think that, that you know, now because of, of so many different things, but like so many incredible women that are now able to, to do this research and have access to these things. And they, they have so much to contribute as far as their perspective on the world that can be reflected in wildlife. And there's this really good book that, that I just recently read called Bitch by Lucy Cook. And she dives into all of this of like how, you know, there's, there's different biases in researchers which have caused biases in, in research. And so there's kind of these different ideas of like what it means to contribute to society. We kind of forget how everybody contributes to a successful society. I love this idea that at the end of the day, leadership is not really and, and never was solely based on bravado or whatever you want to call it, but about one of the most basic things, right? The, the passage of knowledge. 
that at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of about what your parents or your elders just passed down to you. There is some really cool research that'll be coming out of the University of Montana with my lab mate here, Brenna Cassidy, kind of looking at, at how wolves like kind of take care of each other. And so, you know, it's anthropomorphizing, but it's like, if you're a wolf, you are a good leader if you're providing for everybody and if you're making sure that other individuals within your pack aren't dying because it more or less you're all related it's the same way as like it takes a village to raise a kid or you know any of us that have you know either like close friends or you know found family or, or blood family you know nieces and nephews it's like yeah you want those you want like your, you know, your best friend's kids to succeed and like you want to take them on trips and you want to buy them things. And so I think, you know, authoritarian wolf packs is just, it's not sustainable because if you're a leader of a wolf pack and you only care about yourself, then pups are always dying and, you know, your family's always dying. Like that's not good. You're not more likely to survive. You're not more likely to reproduce. And so that's one of the reasons why there's group living animals because everyone kind of works together. There's, there's been wolves that, that I've watched that are, you know, the male leaders, the quote unquote alpha males that like are great babysitters. Like they hang back and just hang out with the pups while everybody else goes and hunts, you know? And so it's, it's kind of going against this idea that like the, the, you know, the idea that there's only an alpha male, which is, is definitely something that from this paper has been really fun to talk to folks about that. Like, no, there's a male and a female leader in every pack. It's not just one. And odds are everybody listens to the female more than the male. There's been times where like you're watching a wolf pack all sleeping and the quote unquote alpha male gets up and, you know, starts to try to get everybody to move. Everybody ignores him. Then when the female leader gets up, everybody listens and everybody starts going that way. I think that like some of the best leaders are the ones who like aren't always sure and do ask for input or advice or like they want to know everybody's opinion before making a decision take orcas for example orcas are in pods so you know packs whatever orcas are in pods and male orcas generally go off when during the breeding season and they go and breed with a female in another pod to avoid inbreeding and everything but it's funny because male orcas are more successful at breeding if their mom goes with them and so, like, think about that. Like, they have to have their mom be a wingman to be successful in breeding. And so it's just like some of these some of these examples in wildlife is like, like you, you know, trying to think of, you know, your stereotypical, like toxic masculine guy going to a bar, like trying to pick up women. And it's like his mom's over there being like, oh, he's so great. Like, you definitely want to, like, hang out with him. Right. Oh my God, what a metaphor. So maybe the, the ship's turning a bit, I guess. We've had all these decades of misunderstanding around alphas, but maybe the diversification of wildlife research and science in general, I guess, is, is, getting, is getting us to a place where we humans aren't getting our relationships to nature so comically wrong. I think that, that leadership and how we define leadership really depends on like how you take care of the people that you're in charge of. And I think that that can be the same for wolves. Wolves that are the leaders aren't just the ones that are the biggest or the best at fighting or the best at, at killing a bison or killing an elk. Yellowstones, 
working on 28 years of, of really intense wolf research that's contributing so much to, to literature on wolves and just the natural world and ecosystems. And all of these people are, are, are contributing to wolf research, but because we always do this is like, okay, well, how can we use that to try to explain human culture a little more? You know, I think we have a lot to learn. Well, Connor Meyer. Fascinating stuff. We appreciate you taking all this time, definitely over what we promised you. Talk through so many different facets of this, of this research. And honestly, I'm looking forward to, to seeing what you come up with next. I know it's going to be great. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Andrew, that was a fascinating conversation. I often joke that toxic masculinity is like brain worms, but in this case, it literally is. It makes you wonder what other negative or antisocial behaviors we can pin on microscopic parasites. Yeah, this can this can really spin out of control, can it? Everything can can become a, an excuse. It's kind of making me rethink all of these Instagrams and TikToks that I've been seeing lately. They they focus on road rage and obviously almost always it's it's dudes involved in these incidents. I don't get any road rage videos in in my feed but i also don't own a car and maybe the, the algorithm has figured that out about me there's also this really amazing instagram account that i follow the qualified captain and it's again almost always men who have no business driving boats doing really stupid things and now i'm starting to think is it bad boat etiquette or bad brain worms so i was thinking a little about how this conversation with Connor has affected your own thinking about the idea of the alpha. You know, personally, like I I've never really had any delusions about being an alpha myself. You know, people have some people have called me a short king, but not an alpha. You know, and and I accepted that pretty early on. How did this kind of, you know, work, did you ever think you were going to be an alpha? Like, what, what, what disabused you of the notion? Well, first of all, I, I did grow up adjacent to a farm and spent a lot of my time as a kid outside. So now I'm starting to wonder if I'm infected with brain worms. But no, to answer your question, which is a great one, I did just by virtue of the, the place, the rural place that I grew up in, I was surrounded by, you know, what what people with the manosphere would consider alpha male behavior, you know, hunters, fishermen, we did all of those things. And, and there was sort of this dividing line between what was expected of the girls and what was expected of the boys. But I have to say, I was also surrounded by a lot of men who, they did these things, they hunted, they fished, but they, it wasn't their entire identities, you know, they, they, they did things that cut against what what folks in the manosphere would consider, I don't know, sissy or girly, you know, they they loved gardening and and bird watching and nature in general. So I think that kind of that mix that I had growing up early on, it allowed me as I got older to see the silliness of of some of these ultra alpha behaviors that that we're seeing, you know, across culture and social media these days. So so I think I pretty well grew out of any 
delusions about being some kind of alpha male pretty early on. Totally. Andrew, thanks so much for sharing this interview. I thought it was really cool to do this kind of compare and contrast culture, science, science, culture. It's going to be something that we're going to be exploring throughout this season. And yeah, for all the listeners out there, I hope you keep coming back for more of non-toxic. Absolutely. It was, it was such a cool back and forth there between Callum and Connor. Really enjoyed it. All right, folks, that is our show. We will be back next week with an interview with the filmmakers behind the new movie, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. You'll hear how a Swedish manifesto got adapted into one of the most exciting climate thrillers in years, why environmentalists rarely get Hollywood endings, and how to make your own napalm at home. Just kidding. That recipe can be found in Fight Club. Non-Toxic is a production of Loose Thread Studios, hosted by me, Daniel Penny. And me, Andrew Lewis. Music is by Nathan Sharp. Art is by Sam Creasy. Today's episode is made possible by our sponsor, Fruling, and by the donations of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash nontoxicpodcast where you can sign up to receive our monthly newsletter, exclusive merch, and more. And please make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find the show. But nothing does that better than telling somebody you know about it. So spread the word.